This is the podcast for Black this Virginia This is the podcast for Black Virginia the First News. The first and only platform that covers all of Black Virginia. Everybody, this is Lauren Victoria Burke. I uh, am the publisher of Black Virginia News, uh, and as such, I talk to a lot of people, as you might imagine. Even before this podcast, I talked to a lot of people. Uh, my regular Maurice Hawkins, we're still going to drop something tomorrow, probably on the Blue Commonwealth Gala and all the history that was made last week in Virginia. Uh, for those of you outside of Virginia, there was a lot of history made last week. In fact, um, at the Washington Post, Laura Vizella and Greg Schneider wrote, a, wrote about the diversity of all the candidates that were elected. It's historic. Uh, shout out to some of those diverse candidates, uh, LaSharice Aird and Angelia Williams-Graves and Trish White-Boyd, uh, Saddam Salim, <laughs> Stella Pekarsky. There's a lot of people, Kim Adams. Uh, there's a lot of history. There's a lot of what we, I think, are seeing is demographic change, uh, generational change, uh, an electorate that's changing in a southern state like Virginia. Uh, and I'm going to talk to somebody who a lot of people refer to, but I, I don't know that they actually know the details. <laughs> I cannot stand, you know, one of the things about social media, it's a double-edged sword. Social media is a great thing sometimes. It really is. Twitter, Facebook. Then on the other hand, I think it kind of keeps us apart a little bit. So my guest today is Fergie Reed Jr. Fergie Reed Jr., uh, is the son of a historic figure in the Commonwealth of Virginia, uh, William Ferguson Reed Sr., who is 98 years old. Um, he was the first African-American to be elected to the General Assembly of Virginia after Reconstruction. Uh, in the 1960s, this is years before Bobby Scott comes along and gets elected to Congress as the first uh, black member of Congress to be elected after Reconstruction, and I'm sure a lot of you know that uh, Jennifer McClellan was just just elected as the first black woman to ever be elected to Congress from the Commonwealth of Virginia, finally catching up with Florida, Texas, and so many other states, North Carolina. Anyway, uh, me and Fergie are going to talk some politics. Uh, I want to lead in by saying that uh, Fergie Reed... Uh, <laughs> There's some historic angles here that are pretty incredible. Just incidentally, everybody out there in Virginia uh, who may know this, you know, Bobby Scott, Congressman Bobby Scott's father was a surgeon, a historic surgeon, a historic figure, C. Waldo Scott. He knew Fergie's father. Um, and in fact, all these people are groundbreaking. C. Waldo Scott, um, you know, knew Fergie Reed's father. Fergie Reed's father went to Howard U Medical School, also went to Virginia Union undergrad. And incredibly, uh, I was just reminded by Fergie that uh, C. Waldo Scott went to, Bobby Scott's father went to the University of Med Medical School, University of Michigan Medical School with Maggie Walker's grand uh, kid, <laughs> granddaughter, <laughs> which is crazy. I mean, which is amazing. There's a lot of touch points of history here. But Fergie uh, was born in Richmond, uh, integrated St. Christopher's, which is a, a hoity-toity little private school in Richmond. Actually, Glenn Youngkin's son is going to St. Christopher's, uh, probably just graduated. Um, but the person I'm about to talk to now, back in the 60s, integrated St. Christopher's, which is in Richmond, Virginia. So Fergie, welcome. We're going to talk about a few things, politics, 90 for 90, and Jasmine Lipscomb. 
Jasmine Lipscomb is trying to make the ballot out in Danville. Um, and we'll get into that. So, Fergie, tell us about 90 for 90 first. Let's hear about that. Thanks for having me on the show. And yeah, 90 for 90 stands for 90 new voters per precinct per year. The math on that works out to be about a quarter million new voters per year for Virginia. Why 90? Because we started it when dad turned 90 in 2015. There were some ladies down in in, uh, Richmond who wanted to throw dad a birthday party. And they called me and they said, hey, you know, your dad's turning 90. He's been helping us with the Equal Rights Amendment. We've been pushing that for years. So we want to do something nice for him because, you know, he's really helped us out. Can we give him ice cream and cake? Does he have dietary restrictions? And I was like, yeah, he loves ice cream and cake. And all of you guys love each other. But, you know, politics is where you started with each other. Why don't you do something politically uh, impactful that will live for a long time to honor his 90th birthday? And they said, cool, you talk to him and see what he wants. And he said, yeah, I'm turning 90. Uh, Do a voter registration thing where you register 90 new voters per precinct and do it every year. And, you know, people will do it or they won't do it, but it's just a nice reminder, like reminding kids to do their homework. (laughs) How how does a medical doctor get involved in politics? um, Dad started a group called the Crusade for Voters in 1956, I think. Uh, He got back from his service uh, in the Korean conflict in 1955, came back to Richmond. Um, And he saw what was going on, bird machine, massive resistance to school uh, desegregation. And he saw that the power is in the vote. And there were a lot of black people not voting in Richmond. They were members of the NAACP. And originally there was an NAACP voting group and dad was part of this voting group but harry bird was making a hard move on the naacp and he said well you guys are doing politics and we're going to try to remove your nonprofit status so dad and and johnny brooks and, and bill thornton said you know what we don't need to be in the naacp we're going to go start our own thing richmond crusade for voters was born and they started in their own precincts you know telling people let's get organized Let's have community groups. Let's push the legislature to take care of our community. And let's show them that we have power because we're going to come out and vote. So so once again, massive resistance playing a role, obviously, in Virginia history and black politics. Uh, Correct. Because, you know, uh, Bobby Scott's father during massive resistance sent him to Groton in Massachusetts to go to school because mass massive resistance. So here we go again with it matters. So there's an, another point of... Uh, 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 confluence. We'll get to that in a second, but put a pin in that rotten. All right. <laughs> okay. Um, and so, and, and yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Then, then do you know where Bobby went to college? He went to Harvard and, and, uh, Boston college for medical uh, for, for for law, law school. school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So Groton is a feeder school for Harvard. Right. And, um, so, but back to the point about the massive resistance, dad and his friends doing this, uh, Richmond Crusade for Voters thing, you had to pay poll taxes and pass literacy tests. So they, you know, schooled people up on how to get everybody past the poll taxes and the literacy tests. And a lot of black people started getting registered to vote. And the black vote started uh, being impactful in Richmond. 
the the bird machine white all white male uh legislators started going hey well these black people are voting maybe i'm gonna go talk to them and all of a sudden they start getting more votes even though they're segregationists there's a dialogue going on and they start taking care of the issues of the black voters and more and more black people are getting registered to vote all of a sudden you know there are other white politicians figuring out hey you know these black people are voting maybe i gotta go talk to them one of those white politicians who understood this was a fellow named j sergeant reynolds a young superstar scion of the reynolds medals family you know nobody needs to know what reynolds rap is right <laughs> right but but that family inside the family they called them the poor cousins well who are the rich cousins right the rich cousins are the winston cigarettes cousins rjr because the reynolds medals family i think is the the grandchild of the rjr tobacco fortune and now we're back into pre-civil war times with the rjr fortune so this guy j sergeant reynolds is part of that family and if you have any history on him the dude was a superstar but he understood i gotta go talk to these black folks so he and dad became you know like ebony and ivory and they ran on a ticket in 1965 together uh one of the ways that the black vote was uh diluted was that there were no single member districts so you ran in this gigantic ticket of like eight or nine guys in a gigantic district that's like richmond and henrico plus bigger than a congressional district so that way a black person will never get elected because you know the white vote will overswamp it the eight or nine white guys will get in dad ran on one of these tickets in 65 and he barely missed it by a few tens of votes so he just kept running mm-hmm sarge made it in 65 and in 67 that was a senate year sarge ran for senate dad ran for house dad got into the house sarge got into the senate and all of a sudden the white folks are saying oh shit this excuse me this black guy got elected even though we're trying to dilute the black vote maybe we should rethink this multi-member district thing because a lot of black people could get elected right they rethought it and they made single member districts but only one at large district and that was the district that dad had to run in okay i got it wow wow <laughs> so, so the so, next cycle dad yeah. got elected again but then now we're talking the 1969 cycle sarge got elected lieutenant governor right one of the reasons that he got elected lieutenant governor is that dad and his friends from the crusade for voters had gone around the states to you know give trainings to a lot of black people around the state who wanted to do the same thing in their areas that dad and his friends were doing in richmond in the norfolk area when they gave this training jay jones's grandfather was a judge and he took it on and he became one of the leaders of that effort in his area and when they went across the water to the hampton newport news area bobby scott's parents were among the people that took it on and made it their mission to start this same kind of project right right so you, you see this at this time there's a lot of black folk 
who are taking it upon themselves to not just be subjugated. They're coming up on their own. Right. And obviously, Waldo uh, and Maggie Walker and Dad, you know, they're coming from these families that, you know, they're not downtrodden. You know, they got their heads held high and they're educated. They're not afraid even though there's plenty of good reason to be afraid. All this making sense so far? <laughs> Absolutely. See Waldo Scott uh, and May Scott, uh, who's a teacher, incidentally, I'm sure a lot of listeners, if you're from Virginia, uh, have been to the Bobby Scott picnic. If you're from Virginia and involved in politics, you've probably been to the Bobby Scott picnic. Well, that house on Shore Drive in Newport News is the house of the person we're talking about, uh, Dr. C. Waldo Scott. And there's a C. Waldo Scott Center in Newport News. But to get back to your father, um, when did he when did he get out of politics? So when did he lose? Well, let me continue mm-hmm. with this because it's yeah, important uh-huh, history. Uh-huh. So Sarge gets elected uh, lieutenant governor, which opens up a Senate seat in Richmond. Right. A Senate seat that no black person is ever supposed to win because it's drawn in such a way to be overwhelmingly white. But now we're going to have a special election in the Richmond area. And people wanted dad to run, but we'd already moved out to Glen Allen. And if he'd moved back to his mom's house, which was right next door to the Maggie Walker house, because Maggie, Maggie Walker was his next door neighbor, he could have run for the seat, but he didn't want to do that. So, you know, he knew of a young man, his age, a little bit younger, that had political ambitions and was smart and was well-liked and was putting work in in the community. And he made a move on that guy and said, dude, this is your time. If you want this seat, you could be a senator right now because it's going to be a low voter turnout election. And we've been working to make sure the black population in Richmond is some of the best voters in the state. So do you want it? Because if you want it, you could have it for life. You just do the right thing with it. And the fellow said, yeah, I want it. Let's go do it. And he campaigned hard in that special election. And he won you know what his name is? I have a feeling his name is Doug. <laughs> Wilder, correct. And, you know, he took care of his political career, and he was smart. And in 1985, he got elected lieutenant governor. And in 1989, he made national history as the first elected black governor in the history of the United States. There had been another black governor, but that guy didn't get elected back during Reconstruction in Louisiana. He rose through succession. There have been four black governors. Doug was the first elected. The guy in Louisiana was the absolute first, rose through succession. Uh, Deval Patrick elected in Massachusetts, and Patterson in New York rose through succession. So that's American history. And it's the power of the black vote. And because Deval got elected in 2006, well, the team that helped elect him, they flipped over to another young black guy who was running in 2008 for president. Correct me on this if I'm wrong about it. But, you know, anybody out there with the Google, see if the people who helped Deval Patrick didn't end up on the young man's uh, campaign in 2008. <laughs> Absolutely. Um that's great stuff. So you might have guessed, everybody, I'm a little bit of a history buff. I, I majored in history at American University. Uh, so, so I have with me uh, Dr. Fergie Reed, Jr. Um, 
you know, uh, tell me about, uh, tell me about recruiting candidates. So you've talked to a lot of candidates that end up running, encouraging them to run, uh, 30 plus strong. Tell me about that. There's a lot of people who just are sort of, I think slightly mystified by the process of running for office, even though we have a lot of new great organizations, uh, you know, she runs and higher heights and this and that, but it's nice to have someone to talk to who kind of walks you through the process. Tell me a little bit about that. In 2015, when we started 90 for 90, it was voter registration. Seeing the number of candidates that got locked into the nominations that year, there's a hundred house seats in Virginia. At that time in 2015, Democrats held 33 of them. That is known as a super minority. The other team has a super majority, veto-proof majority. So Terry McCullough was the governor. If they didn't like a bill that he signed, they could, you know, they had the, the power to override his veto. So we needed to get at least one seat. But we also needed to get the majority. You got 33 seats, you got to win 17, 18 to get the outright majority. They ran 23, in 23 of the 67 Republican districts. So they ran in a total of 56 out of 100 districts. They just gave away 44 seats before the game starts. Does that make sense? I hear you. Keep going. Right. And so that's not the way to win the game. Right? You have to compete in order to win. You're not going to win every district, but you have to compete. So that's when I decided I got to recruit candidates. So 2017 came around and it was really easy to recruit candidates because everybody was fired up because Trump just got elected. Right. So, you know, it was like picking low hanging fruit. Not a problem. 2019, a little bit more difficult because the 2017 thing had worn off a little bit. But, you know, you make the calls early try to make sure people know what's reality can you win the district or can you not win the district all right if you can win the district then you're running a different kind of race than if you are unlikely to win the district but it's very important to run even though you are probably not going to win the district yeah you know i think the 2017 cycle is a really interesting one for anybody who is involved in any way in politics in Virginia. We really saw a ton of activity, a ton of candidates. I think that was really, uh, you know, the the moment. They were coming where, out of the woodwork. Yeah, and that, it that was everybody wanted to run. <laughs> right, and the they were traffic jams. It was beautiful. <laughs> yeah, the ladies in a way, but it caused you know traffic jams. But go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say the ladies of Chesterfield, and we got you know Loria Wexton and Spanberger, and then. Ralph Northam and Justin Fairfax and Mark Herring win and sweep, you know, the Democrats in in that 2017 election. Here's a quick story about 2017. Uh huh. Um, in 2017, I believe Democrats ran 88 candidates out of the 100 districts. Let me make sure I'm right about that. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong. 88 out of 100. I'm on the phone with the people who run the House Caucus, Democratic House Caucus, and I'm telling them, wow, there are 17 districts that you guys don't have right now that are Republican districts that Hillary Clinton won. You can win 17 districts. There are five additional districts that you could win as well. So you could really win 22 districts if you really try hard 
you have to probably play for 30 of them or, you know, appear to be playing for 30 of them, but you could probably win 22 max. And the people who ran the house caucus laughed at me and like, no, 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 we can only win eight or nine, you know, 10 or 11 on the best possible night. Tsunami night will only win 10 or 11. And I'm like, well, you're, you're playing soft. You're not playing to win. You know, you're just playing easy. And then election night rolls around and they won 15 outright. And the 16th race, the 16th race, because they had 34 seats to start out, the 16th race would have given them a 50-50 power sharing agreement. Do you know how many votes they lost that 16th race by? No, how many? Zero votes. Wow. It went to the the pulling the film canister out oh, of the bowl. Yeah. Right. That was right. Shelley Simons. Right. Lost by zero votes. Right. Other people who lost, who could have won, Dante Tanner, Josh Cole, Larry Barnett, I think Sheila Bynum Coleman, uh, Veronica Coleman, maybe um, Willie Randall. These people were a thousand votes or fewer, their losses. But Dante Tanner was about a hundred and Josh Cole was about a hundred and Larry Barnett was about a hundred and twenty something. These were like meat on the bone just left there um, because people didn't see what was possible. So I vowed to myself never to let that happen again. So, and the way, uh-huh. go ahead, I was, you go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that 2017 Trump-driven energy that was seen in Virginia, uh, I thought carried over to 2019 as well uh, when the it Democrats did. took it. You know, it's like, it, it did. It's, it's amazing. It did you know? because we recruited more candidates. So we had 92 districts out of 100 that cycle. Wow. Now, you know, we started out with 49 incumbents. So that meant we we're running in, uh, excuse me, um, what, 42? 42 uh, of the 51, right? Yeah, that sounds uh, Forgive me if that's wrong. But um, at any rate, we left eight districts uncontested. Okay. Only eight. Now, now I'm going to offer you In, some pushback, yeah. and then you, you yeah. battle me back. Yeah. Like go, go, the, go, go, go. The, the idea that, okay, we're running people in every seat. Obviously, you have a lot of red seats out there in rural Virginia and Southwest. Everybody knows this, who does anything in Virginia. So, like, the idea that we're running everybody in every seat, isn't that a waste of money? We know these people are going to lose. Why are we doing that? Because when you contest a Republican, and this works the other way, and the Republicans ran this game perfectly last cycle. Good for them. Kudos. When you contest somebody who would rather not have a general election, that means they have to run a general election. And that means they have to spend their bankroll in their district. When you don't contest them, they get to spend their bankroll throughout the state. And they gang up on the people that you want to use to flip. So why not go to play a basketball game and bring five players? Why not go to play a football game and bring 11 players? Why not go to play a baseball game and bring nine players? The thought of playing any of these games with less than the the usual amount of players is ridiculous. Not all your players are going to be Michael Jordan's or LeBron James's or 
Giannis's, right? But none of those teams have teams full of those people. They have the superstars, and they have, you know, uh, Charles Barkley and and Shaq call them the others. The others are very important because the others win you championships. And so you have to field a full team because it makes the other team have to play hard. That's why you run everywhere. Moreover, and the most important reason to run everywhere is to enfranchise every voter. So that some voters don't live in the Soviet Union where they only have one name on the ballot. They live in an actual small D democracy called America, where they're supposed to have a choice on their ballot. But they only have a choice if the parties provide them a choice. So now we're getting close to the Jasmine Lipscomb uh, discussion. But Yeah, and so to talk about Jasmine Lipscomb, so this is HD 49 in Danville, Halifax. Danville and South Boston. South Boston. Um, So I'm just going to lead in by saying this. So we just saw a historic moment in Virginia where we can see, obviously, diverse candidates winning. And a lot of those demographics of those candidates are the base of the Democratic Party, uh, namely black women, (laughs) comes to mind on that. Virginia's a 20 Because I was doing the majority of the recruiting for all of the Republican-held districts. Mm -hmm. Because the caucus is interested in winning the super winnable districts and those are not the republican held districts by and large the republican held districts and the overwhelmingly republican held districts this is the discussion we're having you know the parties don't care about that on either side the republicans they don't want to compete in arlington and alexandria and fairfax they did last cycle to their benefit but usually the parties kind of just find the the sweet spot middle districts that they can flip and that's where they compete yeah but to jump off a little bit to get into jasmine lipscomb you know what i feel like i'm feeling is that 2017's excitement and 2019's excitement is starting to wane a little bit for the democrats in terms of obviously the democrats lost the mansion in 2021 though not by much they still needlessly needlessly And and then they lost the house uh, needlessly. And, and we're going to have a situation where we have no top of ticket, or I should say the Democrats have no top of ticket that has a senator, a U.S. senator, or a governor on the top. So you really have to depend on your base coming out for the general, okay? And you have to give them a reason to come out, and you have to do it district by district because there's no statewide overlap. There's right, no right. overarching umbrella statewide race. So it's a, a district by district House and Senate, because the Senate candidate, the state Senate candidate, is the overwatch umbrella candidate on top of all the other stuff down ballot. Yeah, and you can kind of feel the, I don't want to say lack of energy, but, you know, we did see, I would say, a not so high number on some of these early vote numbers for the June 20 primary, right? I mean, primaries are typically not overwhelmingly attended by voters anyway, but I'm just saying that I'm getting the sense that certainly that 2017, 2019... I'm not drawing any conclusions based on primary (laughs) vote. I think that's a a non-starter. I think that... I don't know that I would confuse the energy of 2017 and 2019 with what I'm seeing right now. No, I think you're right. Energy was higher then, but that was early Trump. It was early and Trump, so, and now Trump is not on the ballot, and then, you know, Yunkin gets and, in there. And Biden's in the White House, and everybody kind of lets their guard down. 
yeah, Youngkin's in the the governor's mansion, and he's gonna play really hard, and he's good about being sneaky about how hard he's playing. And But so, yeah, and so for the Democrats to win the House back, and of course keep the Senate, one would think that the strategy would be to run. Uh, I mean, I think the Danny Marshall seat in Danville, HD 49, where Jasmine Lipscomb was trying to get or is trying to get still on the on the ballot, is a plus five red seat. Plus uh, six. Plus six. Okay. Plus six yeah. red seat. So. And on the mirror image, so that we get a context, the mirror image district, the plus six Dem district seat, is Fredericksburg, 65. Where Josh Cole and the Republican, who's already got Glenn Youngkin's endorsement, are running. So, look at them as equals. You have the Fredericksburg district D plus six. You have the Danville district R plus six. Republicans are playing extremely hard for that D plus six. I'll go further on that line. Fegans and Greenhall in Virginia Beach. That's a D plus seven point five. Now these numbers are coming from a national horse race forum called Dave's Redistricting. They're different than the VPAT numbers because they average in all the elections. The VPAT numbers do not include the Biden-Trump numbers, and so that skews things to the board, the Republicans. But Dave's Redistricting uses all the elections and averages everything in. That's how you get these numbers. So, so yeah. So I would think that you know certainly after watching uh, Terry McAuliffe barely lose, uh, really because of rural. So Yunkin got on a bus, and I actually went to a bunch of uh, McAuliffe events and a bunch of Yunkin well, events. Let me let me stop you right there. Republicans ran in ninety-eight out of a hundred districts. The only two Democrats that got a freebie from Republicans were Sharnell Herring and Dolores McQuinn. Everybody else had a Republican opponent. Okay, that meant every Democrat, even the super safe ones, had to worry about a general election. Democrats ran in ninety-three out of a hundred, which is really quite good. But we had it to a hundred, but one by one, seven of our hundred dropped out, leaving us with ninety-three. Where did they drop out? In the most Republican part of the state, Southwest Virginia, otherwise known as the Ninth Congressional District. And that's where a lot of big-time Republicans had a lot of big-time money, and they were able to not have to run a general election, and they floated a lot of that money into our races that we wanted to hold on to, and those were Josh Cole, Martha Mugler, Nancy Guy, Alex Askew, Roz Tyler, Latrice Aird, and Chris Hurst. We lost seven seats. All of those people I mentioned had more money than their Republican opponents, but their Republican opponents got the benefit of extra money coming into their races at crucial times because we didn't run in the most Republican part of the state. Now, Republicans ran in the most Democratic part of the state: all of Northern Virginia, Richmond, Tidewater, except for two. We just left all of Southwest Virginia uncontested, and it cost Terry. He lost by sixty-three thousand votes. Halla lost by fifty thousand votes. Mark Herring lost by twenty-eight thousand votes. Those races out there cost us because we did not get people excited to come out to vote because they didn't have anybody down ballot to vote for. Forgive me for interrupting you. No, I was just going to say that after watching what happened in twenty twenty-one, I think everybody can conclude that. 
A big factor was the Democrats not really hitting rural as hard as Glenn Youngkin did. Glenn there Youngkin, you go. Southwest Virginia's rural. He, he rolled a bus into every rural section he could and really focused on rural. I mean, that's what Glenn Youngkin did, and he ends well, up winning because of it. And you know? that's what you do in elections. You run up the score where you're strong, and you try to mitigate your loss where you're weak. And so by running everywhere in Democratic territory, he mitigated his loss where he was weak. Yeah. Terry, Terry let Glenn Youngkin run up the score where he was strong. That's the benefit of running everywhere, when you, especially when you have a statewide candidate on the ballot. You know, Terry could have gone out there to southwest Virginia and given those people a little touch, a little love, but he didn't have any candidates out there. Because all the ones that I recruited, with the help of uh, Matt Rogers and several other folk, um, they dropped out for a bunch of reasons. But sometimes it was because their own party people said, yeah, yeah you shouldn't run, you're going to lose we don't want to have a loser on our record. Hmm. It's going to be bad for you if you lose. Yes. But that presupposes that you don't live in Southwest Virginia, which is the most overwhelmingly Republican part of the state. You know, that kind of mentality just breeds more losing. And it does not breed party building. And if you ever want to win out there, you have to build the party. But you can't build the party if you never run candidates. You know, it's a vicious cycle. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure I've heard Jamie Harrison, who I've talked to several times, you know, he he has, is the chair of DNC, of course, from South Carolina. Understood. I, I made he, sure he went and visited with Dad when he became the DNC chair when Dad lived in Maryland. I set them up so that they would have a, a meeting, and they did. And Dad told them, man, you've got to run candidates everywhere. You just can't leave these states that you don't win uh, fallow. you got to go there and work. So that maybe it, one day you start winning those states. Hopefully the message got through. Another guy that I set up with Dad to have a meeting before he went and moved to Wisconsin is Ben Wickler. And Ben Wickler is doing that work now in Wisconsin. And you see the, the change in Wisconsin now. You know, It's not because they had a meeting with Dad, but it didn't, it didn't hurt. Yeah. I you hear it from so the old man. Yeah, I, so with that, I'm, I'm a little bit confused, I guess, by the the back and forth about what I would frankly consider to be minutiae. <laughs> you know, right. I, I, I'm not like a person that likes to, you know, focus on details that don't miss the big picture. And to me, the big uh -huh. picture, I, I know a lot of people are getting very fixated on the individual people. Like, so... We're talking about Jasmine Lipscomb, and, and she's a Marine and a paralegal and all this, and that's great. Black woman candidate be fantastic. Mm -hmm. But but my thing is, if if they're not, if the party is not running Jasmine Lipscomb, okay, then why is the party not running anybody? <laughs> it's like that's a, a very question. very interesting question, isn't it? You know, so I, I to me, if if there was some issue with her or not, whatever, then you would think they. Very interesting run. question, isn't it? Somebody so R, R plus six district, 47% minority, 40% black. Why aren't we running a Democratic candidate there? And also the lines are different for Danny Marshall. So He's never run in this. Nobody has ever run in these district lines. Nobody in the whole Commonwealth of Virginia has ever run in the district that they're about to run in. 
because none of the district lines are exactly the same as the last Which district lines. Which is what George Barker just found out uh, uh, from Stella. And, and, and Chad Peterson yeah. and some other folk too. You know, so, I mean, public service announcement. Uh, anybody who can come on and explain that is welcome to come on this podcast and explain that. I have put out a few feelers, certainly to the party and everybody else. Uh, to talk about just general stuff. doesn't have to be one race or one seat or HD 49. But I'm a big uh, fan of, you know, talking, talking about politics. I have no problem listening to things I might not agree with. That's all good. Uh, so but let's it's just give the, of... the HD 49 thing a, a couple of minutes because right? it's important. Uh-huh. Um, you can qualify for the ballot by the primary method. The deadline for that is April 6th. If no candidate steps up, then there's a secondary qualifying period between April 6th and June 20th this year. And that's the the county caucus committee call the caucus, cancel the caucus method. If more than one person steps up during the call the caucus, they have what's known as a firehouse caucus or an assembled caucus. And if only one person steps up, then they cancel the caucus because they don't need to have an election because only one person stepped up. Different county committees are empowered to run their caucuses how they see fit. In some of these cases where the local committees knew that they only had one candidate, they didn't require a filing fee. They didn't require any signatures. They just said, you know, we're going to let the the call to caucus period seven to 10 days run out. And if it runs out and we still only have one candidate, that person becomes the nominee. There were 16 other calls to caucus going out in the same time frame as Jasmine. In about five or six of these calls to caucus, no filing fee, no signature requirements. In several others, $50 filing fee, $100 filing fee, $200 filing fee. Some of these are refundable, some are not refundable. Nobody got asked for any signatures. In Jasmine's call to caucus, the filing fee was $500. That's double what anybody else was asked for. And she was asked for 100 signatures. That's 100 more signatures than anybody was asked for. So obviously there's some disparate treatment going on. But okay, Jasmine is a woman of modest means. Like most of America, she didn't have a spare $500 non-refundable to give the committee. She also is a paralegal and she'd read the rules. And she knew that the members of the nominating committee have to live in the district. And she knew that at least one of those members did not live in the district. She brought this up to the committee, and apparently they took offense at it. Um, She'd also read the rules and and knew that if the caucus failed to nominate a candidate, they have a tertiary method of nominating. They can just basically wave their hand and nominate by what is known as acclamation. So she didn't have the $500, so she couldn't file the $500. She didn't have the $500, so she didn't get the 100 signatures. A military veteran in Richmond heard about this story after the caucus was canceled and donated the $500 to Jasmine. And when Jasmine got that money in her hand, she went out and got the signatures. Took her two days. She let the caucus know, I've got the money and I've got the signatures. What do you want me to do? They said, we're no longer interested. You've missed the deadline. We're not running a candidate. It became publicized. Then they said, well, if the caucus wants to have a different, you know, another call to caucus, they can do that. Which means they haven't read the rules because they can just wave their hand and make her the nominee without any money, without any signatures. 
Understanding that, she filed a complaint to the the DPVA, and she has received no response from the DPVA. Um, all of this, when we're talking about an R plus six district that's forty seven percent minority, we have a wonderful black female marine veteran who is putting herself up. If but for her, there will be no other Democratic candidate. It's mind boggling that there's so much pushback against running a Democrat in this district. Yeah, I mean, I would think the job of that local committee is to find a candidate to run, if not Miss Lipscomb, someone else. <laughs> like, the I mean, job I of understand. the committee is also to run a, a caucus based on the rules of the party, which yeah. they did not, because subsequent to filing the complaint, she found out that yet another member of the committee didn't live in the district just strictly prohibited by the Democratic Party rules. You cannot have a member of a nominating committee for either a House or Senate district who does not reside in the district. Four people on her committee, two of them did not reside in her district. One resided in HD 50, the other resided in HD 48. Two members resided in HD 49, her district. One of those two members had taken themselves out of the game due to illness. So what you have is a four member committee where only one of the members is actually a legitimate member. And one person does not make a committee. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I like to take it big picture. And big picture, I, what I think about is, of course, uh, the his, what would be a historic speakership for Don Scott. And Correct. probably overlapping with another historic speakership, which would be Hakeem Jeffries, which, full disclosure, I have a, a, a personal thing to want Hakeem Jeffries in there because I have a place in Brooklyn and <laughs> I have a, some connections with Brooklyn. My mother, my grandmother's house is in Brooklyn and uh, the old Shirley Chisholm district and Hakeem Jeffries is from Crown Heights, Brooklyn. So it would be really cool to see Hakeem Jeffries as the U.S. House Speaker following a, another historic U.S. House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, and Don Scott as the Speaker in Virginia, the first Correct. black speaker Correct. in history in Virginia. And in order, so course, in order fight, for Don to be the Speaker, he's got to be in the majority. Right. So this fight is about the majority in the House. Uh, and it's just, it's just interesting to watch the level of intrigue over this HD 49 seat. We'll see what happens next. Um, the Cardinal did a, a pretty good piece on this, and so did, um, there was a, uh, a column in the Richmond Times Dispatch. Michael Paul Williams, Pulitzer Prize winner. Right. Um, Graham Muma has written about and this. And Graham Muma, of course, uh, the great Graham I believe Muma. there's another Cardinal piece coming up right. sometime soon. So, yeah, and right. so, um, from what see. I understand, Graham Muma is following up on this as well. Okay, so we'll see what Graham writes and what the Cardinal writes as well. Um, it, it's just really, to me, more about the strategy for the majority than anything else. But at any rate, anything else you want to add? Thank you so much for what you're doing. It's an incredibly valuable uh, service that you're providing, and I, I can't thank you enough for it. <laughs> no problem. We're just, we're just talking politics here, all right? <laughs> and again, anybody out there who has differing views or thinks that, uh, you know, thinks differently, please contact me. It's blackvirginianews at gmail.com. I'm Lauren Burke. I'm the publisher of Black Virginia News uh, in the beautiful Commonwealth of Virginia. And uh, my guest, Dr. 
Fergie Reed. I, I like to say your whole name, Ferguson Reed. You're not into that. You're just into the Fergie. <laughs> That's all good. I mean, you know, I, I respect it. I, I uh, thank you. But, you know, for the people that know me, I'm Fergie. But I, I love knowing a doctor. I, I, can get, I can get free medical advice every now and then. So, anyway, everybody, you know, have a good thank day. Thank you, Lauren. Really, thank you. <laughs> no problem. You're welcome. Right. I'll be back soon. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening to Black Virginia News. Thank you for listening to Black Virginia News.